Hello, and welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. I'm Penny Lewis, a neuroscientist specializing in sleep and memory and the presenter of this show. In the podcast, we talk about all things related to sleep, from dreaming and sleepwalking to what sleep does for our brain and body and how we can get more out of our sleep. Please see the podcast webpage for details. My guest today is Professor Rito Huber of the University Children's Hospital in Zurich. Professor Huber is a leading expert on sleep and sleep disorders, development and regeneration, and has made significant contributions towards understanding the relationship between sleep and plasticity. We begin by discussing local sleep, sleep homeostasis, and the importance of deep sleep. Professor Huber then explains some of his previous and ongoing research in development and children's sleep relating to brain maturation, critical periods, and neuronal networks. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let me start by saying welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast, and thank you very much for making the time to do this. Thanks for the invitation. So the first question I wanted to ask you is, how did you get interested in sleep in the first place? <laughs> That's a good question. It goes back quite far. Yeah, it started all during my studies in biology at TH Zurich, where I was looking for a diploma work, a master's thesis now. And I remember still very well, I entered the lab of Irene Tobler um, at the time. I was very much interested in behavioral sciences. And I entered her lab and was asking, does she have any possibility for a master's thesis? And she said, yes, there is something, you know, with Chungarian hamsters, we could look at sleep and hibernation or torpor. And I got immediately fascinated by her telling me all about these animals and about sleep. And that basically was my entry point. I stayed there then for my diploma work, my PhD and so on. So that was the starting point of my career in sleep research. So she captured your interest right at the outset. Right away. I think she really has a really good talent, you know, in getting people involved and excited about sleep science. So that was really well done by her. So one of the first areas for which your work was really high profile and celebrated was your work on local sleep. I wonder if you could explain what local sleep is and what is the evidence for it. It's, that's a broad question, Penny, you know. So local sleep, we can write it in a title, in a paper, and that's one of my papers probably referred to about local sleep. But I think it has many facets and it depends a lot on the viewpoint you're taking. You know, you can look from a single neurons perspective, there probably local sleep is really at that level. Does local sleep occur at the neuronal level in a cortical column, for example, like David Rector has shown and so on? Or you can have more an outside view as we had and see that there are actually different topographies of how sleep and sleep oscillations occur. And you can define that also there, but that's more a systems level perspective than where we see different oscillations or different expression of this oscillation across the cortex. So I think it depends a lot on the viewpoint, but in the end, it differentiates most easily probably from, let's say, global sleep, where people basically enter into sleep, they fall asleep, lose consciousness and are asleep, you know, and we would always say that's the entire brain, the entire person, the entire body falling asleep. And only when we look more closely at the topography or at single neurons, we start seeing, well, that's definitely true. You know, all neurons are showing signs of sleep and all the cortex shows signs of sleep, but there are strong differences. This is basically the definition, I would say, for local sleep, that you start seeing that there are one brain area being in very deep sleep and another brain area, maybe less deep sleep. One neuron showing on-off states reflecting this deep sleep at the neuronal level, and another neuron might not show the same activity. So you mentioned two ways of looking at it. So either looking from the outside, maybe at the cortical columns, or looking from the inside at the brain activity. Can you just explain a bit more what you would do in each of those approaches? What would you actually look at? Well, for the outside look, the system levels look, I think the standard or the gold standard for sleep research for decades or forever was electroencephalography, you know, that we would attach an electrode to the skull and record brain activity through the skull on the surface of the brain. What has changed over the decades probably is that more and more electrodes have been attached. In the end, we and others used so-called high-density EEGs, 
where actually up to 256 electrodes were attached to the skull, which allows then, of course, to get a certain topography or regional changes can be better detected than with a few single electrodes. So that's more or less the outside look. The other side is basically look from the inside, where we can look at local field potential, where electrodes are entered into the brain and neuronal activity is recorded like that. We can also have multi-unit recordings, you know, where you actually get even closer to a single neuron, where you actually then see the activity of single neurons, you know, how they oscillate, for example, between active states and passive states. Or what also has been performed, intracellular recordings, really recording from a single neuron in the cortex, where then you can really assess the changes in membrane potential and spiking activity and track that across the different stages of sleep, for example. And when you're looking for markers of sleep, in this case, you tend to be looking for slow oscillations. Is that right? Right. I mean, markers of deep sleep, let's say. We know that sleep, of course, is divided into different vigilant states. You have non-REM sleep and rapid eye movement REM sleep. And in non-REM sleep, especially the deeper sleep stages, we see these slow oscillations, which slow waves, which define this stage uh, to a large extent. So you see those very well from the outside, but you see also a very special activity pattern when looking at individual neurons, because these neurons at that stage show these so-called on and off states. So they're active for a few hundred milliseconds as during wakefulness, and then enter a hyperpolarization stage where they are silent for a few hundred milliseconds before then they cycle back into an active state. And so these slow oscillations are, just for listeners that haven't come across them, they are around about one per second or slower And they are just what looks like in our EEG, massive oscillations of electrical activity that are caused by synchronous firing of cortical neurons. Would you add to that definition? No, that's a perfect definition. Yeah, I think it's a network activity in the end where lots of those neurons show, as you're saying, desynchronized on and off states. And as a consequence of that, you see on the surface these large amplitude slow waves, which are probably the biggest, let's say, physiological waves we can record from our brains. Of course, there are pathological patterns which might exceed these amplitudes, but I would say in the physiological range, these are by far the largest oscillations we can record from our brain. And these are highly characteristic of slow-wave sleep, which you were calling deep sleep. And so when you're looking for local sleep, as I understand it, what you're looking for is whether different parts of the brain might actually exhibit these slow oscillations at different times. So you might not find it across the whole brain at the same time, as maybe we've thought in the past dogmatically, but instead this could be happening just in different areas. Like one little bit of my brain decides to fall asleep right now and the rest of it is awake. Yeah, that's a most extreme case, of course, I would say, you know, where you actually really see some brain areas are showing these slow oscillation, showing slow wave sleep characteristics, you know, whereas others still show characteristic of wakefulness that has been shown. But I would say what also is interesting that you can have different depths of sleep in the same brain, you know, so it's not only that this all or nothing phenomenon we just talked about now, but it's probably also the magnitude or how deep a brain area sleep can differ quite dramatically across brain areas. So you can have, like in adults, you know, we typically sleep that our frontal cortex shows really very deep sleep, whereas other areas like on the temporal sides, for example, they are in a less deep sleep stage. And this is very nicely reflected, we know since a long time, by the amplitude or how big these slow waves are. So the deeper we sleep, the larger these amplitudes of these slow waves are. And so we can quantify that quite easily by calculating the amplitude of these waves and can derive then how deep these areas sleep. And I mean, that's where we saw that also when we perform manipulations that we can actually interact with sleep depth in local areas. And I think that is basically one of the keys maybe how we, why we say that sleep is locally regulated as well nowadays. And so that's quite a big difference or a shift in perspective, isn't it, compared to the idea that, you know, the whole brain either switches off and is deeply asleep or it's awake. 
this idea that you can have different areas sleeping to different levels. Why do you think that would happen? And why would the brain do this? Again, I would differentiate these different aspects. So let's first focus on where we see this all or none phenomenon, where we have brain areas which are fully asleep and others are showing wakefulness-like activity. I think there might be certain conditions, you know, where this could be useful or has an advantage, you know. For example, let's start with a clinical condition, you know, a classic one would be for something like sleepwalking, which is interesting enough in kids or during development quite normal, or most of them show signs of, of sleepwalking or sleep talking at least. So now we know that sleepwalking, sleep talking takes place during deep sleep when actually the majority of brain areas are showing these slow oscillations. But still, during these stages of sleepwalking, you can walk around, you can behave, you can put on clothes or do some tasks. And so obviously, if the brain is responsible for our behavior, you need certain brain areas to be awake and being able to carry out these tasks. And these are typically would be motor areas, which has been shown in a very few studies that they show during these stages wake-like activity. So that might be a condition, you know, like sleepwalking, where this is quite natural to occur, this co-occurrence of wake and sleep-like states in, in the same brain. There is, for example, such a strong developmental aspect to this. We don't know. But it might be really an interesting research area. I'm quite curious. And I think in the past years, there were some studies coming out looking more closely into that. I think first we have to describe that very well, you know, so what actually can we capture that, for example, from the outside? And then can we manipulate that maybe and see what consequences this has? So there's quite some research um, to go, I think, in this field. So what you are doing first is trying to describe the phenomena and then hopefully our understanding of what's driving this in the brain will evolve or develop as well in parallel. You have some really beautiful work where you looked at the relationship between this local sleep and things that have been learned in the day. So for instance, if you've done a motor task, then you get more local sleep in the motor areas. Can you explain about that and maybe explain how it links to synaptic homeostasis as well? Yeah, I mean, that's the other part, you know, not this all or none phenomenon, but this is going more back into, let's call it the, this use-dependent regulation of sleep. So that has been started quite early on, actually already in the 90s, you know, where people have start looking into that so that if you overuse a specific brain area by doing some tasks, let's say a sensory motor task, for example, which has been used at the time, people saw that then the corresponding brain area during subsequent sleep shows deeper sleep, again, quantified by looking at these slow waves or slow oscillations. So that has started then. We wanted not only to look at use, but actually contrast use with learning. So what our participants performed was a quite intense visual motor learning task. And we contrasted that to a simple motor execution, which was not involving any learning. And when we looked then at subsequent sleep after these two conditions, we found that after the learning task, in contrast to the motor control task, we found an increase in slow oscillation activity over a right parietal cortical area. And this was exactly the same area which was involved in learning this task, which was shown in other studies. So we were able to establish a direct link between learning-induced plastic changes, potentially, you know, and subsequent regulation of these slow waves in these very same brain areas. And so this was sort of part of the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis you referred to, that namely, when you learn during the day, you build up synaptic strengths. That's kind of still one of the primary mechanisms. We believe learning takes place at the neuronal level by strengthening connections, strengthening synapses. And so in the course of the day, you build up synaptic strengths all over your brain, you know. And as a consequence of that, related to the experiment I just explained, we see an increase in slow oscillation activity and slow effectivity during subsequent sleep. So this is one part of the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis claiming that there is a direct link 
between learning-induced plastic changes and how deep a brain area or our brain sleeps during subsequent nights. Now, the other part of the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis that it claims that it not only reflects what happened the day before, but it actually has also a function. The naming of that has changed over the years. Initially, it was called downscaling, then maybe normalization. Now we would say it is rather something like down selection. All in all, it basically says that during sleep, related to these slow waves, synaptic strength is reduced globally across all neurons. And as a consequence, you have between day and night a homeostatic regulation of the synaptic strength, which ensures that over time it is balanced and remains stable across time. The consequence of that is that you have the capacity to learn again and again, you know, and you don't have issues of saturation, which you might have, you know, if you keep potentiating synapses all over your brain every day. So it's basically this counterpart of the wake world where synaptic strengthening takes place due to learning during sleep, we rather have a weakening of those synapses. And as a consequence, it frees capacity to learn new stuff the next day. So it's this idea that basically synapses, which were potentiated and strengthened due to learning and activity in the day, are going to be downscaled or weakened, specifically during slow-wave sleep, the deep sleep phase. And that replenishes your ability to restart the learning or learn in different ways again the following day. As I understand it, part of what was exciting about the local sleep that you saw over the parietal area, the area which was particularly involved in this motor learning task, was that you saw the sharp kind of peak in slow wave activity in that area at the beginning of the night. And then the amount of slow wave activity in that area actually came down to match what was happening in the rest of the brain across the next hour and a half or so of sleep. It's almost as if there's a hunger, there's a drive for slow wave sleep in that area. And when it's satisfied, then it it normalizes and it behaves more as the rest of the brain. Is that right? Absolutely. And I mean, we have also this term sleep homeostasis. And this was basically around decades before synaptic homeostasis. And and sleep homeostasis reflects exactly what you were saying. We knew uh, since a long time that when we stay awake and prolong our waking period, that it builds up, we would call sleep pressure. And this buildup in sleep pressure, you know, is reflected in an increase in the slow effectivity in the slow wave frequency range. And in the course of sleep, as you just said now for this local area, in the course of sleep, we know that slow effectivity dissipates, decreases, and actually reflecting this recovery function, let's say, of sleep. That has been known for a very long time. And what we were able to show is that this also takes place on a local level. And depending on whether or not you were learning during the day before sleep. And I believe you also showed the the kind of inverse effect, which is that if you inhibit an area and you prevent it from being used much in the day, then you get less slow of sleep in that region. Do you want to explain that one? Yeah. So that experiment was really, really fascinating. We were actually thinking a long time, how can we achieve the opposite, you know? And we came up with the solution that our participants were wearing an arm sling and we immobilized their arm and protected them from as much of sensory motor input as possible during an entire day. And as a consequence of that, of course, you have in the contralateral motor, sensory motor area, reduced activity for an entire day. And it was known from the literature, and we showed also some evidence for that as well, that if that happens, you have immediately actually a a suppression, depression of synaptic strength in these corresponding areas. So that's a normal function, you know, of not getting any input into a brain area. It starts downregulating immediately. And what we saw during subsequent sleep is that this brain area actually showed less activity in this slow-wave frequency range. So exactly the opposite from learning and as we would have expected. So I personally think this is very cool because not only are you showing the brain is responding in a local 
fashion, but also that it's demand dependent. So it depends what you are doing in the day, whether those particular areas will need to obtain this particular kind of sleep oscillation. And for me, that really begins to suggest what those oscillations might be doing. And in this case, we are talking about the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis. It's beautiful work. I know that you have done other work, for instance, in Drosophila on this hypothesis. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, of course, this all goes back to this um, desire to understand these processes better also from a neuronal perspective. And as we talked about before, this was more the system level perspective where we look from the outside. And of course, we need completely different models if we want to understand this more mechanistically. We are very limited in what we can do by looking from the outside. And different models exist. And one of the most fascinating for me was always fruit flies, Drosophila melanogaster. It has been shown that they show sleep. Their sleep has been characterized extensively and explored. And therefore, this species can be used as a model to study sleep with the huge advantage, of course, that you have the, the whole battery of molecular approaches available. At the time, I still remember we had this specialist, you know, in, in Drosophila genetics in Chiara Cirelli's laboratory. And he showed me, you know, these databases where you can basically order any mutant you want. So think about the gene you want to explore and you find a mutant, likely you find a mutant for that gene in this Drosophila database. Then you can order it and you can study that species or that strain and see how sleep is affected by knocking out a particular gene. So this was kind of just a very fascinating world for me. I was not really an expert, so I definitely needed some help there. But I was involved in this study where we explored also this homeostatic regulation of sleep in Drosophila and showed actually that this also behaves quite similar to how we see that in humans. So that was my time with Drosophila. I'm still would love to at one time point go back to Drosophila sleep research because I'm really very fascinated by this topic. So I have to ask, how do you index sleep in a Drosophila? How do you know when a fly is sleeping? So that took, of course, quite some effort how to establish that. It's primarily based on, on locomotion, so activity. And it has been shown before, so before I started looking into that, that we can come up with a definition of basically a simple period of how long a fly is quiescent in their housing. Typically, when they are awake, they're active, they're walking, they're flying, they're doing something. So you can record that. And now, if you see that a fly was five minutes or longer quiescent, this was actually a quite simple and very good definition of sleep because what people were able to show, and we also did some of this experiment that when you start, for example, disturbing these flies, you want to wake them up or perform, they immediately responded if they were quiescent for one or two minutes, meaning that basically they were likely not asleep. But as soon as it went beyond five minutes, then it actually took much more effort to get them out of the silent quiet state before they started behaving. So these were ways how people came up with simple definitions of sleep, which then you can apply to large-scale data. Of course, you can record fly sleep from hundreds of flies at the same time and then look at their activity or sleep pattern if you define it like that. Yeah, okay, so it's a period of quiescence. And then in your synaptic homeostasis study with the flies, basically you looked at activity during wake and then how much subsequent quiescence they had. Yeah, I would not put that too much into the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis. This was really more looking at sleep homeostasis, you know, basically really looking at if we keep them awake for different durations of wakefulness, where they behave and maybe learn and so on, do they indeed show a bigger need for sleep afterwards, as we would expect from this homeostatic regulation of sleep? And that has been shown. So the longer these flies were kept awake, the more recovery sleep they needed. So we and others uh, concluded from that actually that sleep is also homeostatically regulated in, in fruit flies, as it is in humans, as it is in all rodents, which were studied and so on. 
So just to kind of try and sum up the local sleep story, you've talked about two different reasons why the brain might exhibit this local sleep instead of just global sleep. One of them is potentially to do with homeostatic drive. So the synaptic homeostasis areas that have been really active need to obtain more sleep of this kind in order to reset. But the other one you talked about was, for instance, sleepwalking in kids. So it's, again, a demand-based thing where, you know, depending what you're doing during sleep, you might need to maintain wakefulness in certain brain areas. And so that might determine why. And actually, that one links back to this idea of split brain sleep in, in birds or aquatic mammals where they might need to keep one hemisphere awake so they can continue flying or swimming it's the same kind of idea, isn't it? Absolutely. Fully agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to switch gears now and talk about development. Mm-hmm. In more recent years, you've focused a lot on work in development in babies and in kids. And you've done work on how sleep can be a marker of how the brain is developing and, and various different ways that the brain is developing. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, again, this is basically, I would say, so far one of my favorite topics. It probably started really during the time we explored what we talked about before, that there might be a relationship between sleep and plasticity. And of course, it's quite obvious. Probably everybody knows that our kids or kids sleep much more than adults do. And it's also quite obvious or trivial that in terms of plastic changes taking place, Childhood and adolescence is the time period where this is most extreme. So there actually a lot of reorganization, restructuring processes take place. And so the simple question was, is this by coincidence, you know, that sleep is so intense and so long during that time where also these reorganization processes take place? And that was kind of the entry point into this research area where we wanted to see in a first step how close is this relationship between sleep and these plastic changes? So very much picking up what I did before and using these ideas, these concepts in children in, during childhood and adolescence. And so our first study was, for example, simply, was not that simple at the time, but it sounds probably simple that we use these high-density EG recordings I explained before during development in kids as young as eight years, up to teens, into the adulthood. And we looked at the distribution of the activity of these slow waves across the brain during this developmental time period. And at the time was Salome Kurt, my first PhD student, actually, when I came back here. And she performed together with her colleague these experiments. And when we looked at this topography, we were really puzzled because we saw striking differences from these very young ones to our oldest ones. Because we saw that immediately when we looked at them, that initially in the, these first years in the youngest one, we saw that these slow waves are most expressed over the back of our brains, you know, or occipital cortices. Then with time entering puberty, 10, 12 year olds show also quite central activity. And finally, during adolescence into adulthood, we see that, as I said before, the frontal cortices show the deepest sleep or most of this activity in the slow wave frequency range. So it's quite obvious when you look at these topographies that we see a back-to-front maturation of the expression of slow waves. And this was very interesting because when you look into the literature, you can look at anatomical maturation or behavioral maturation of these different brain areas that it shows the very same phenomenon, a back to front maturation. And so basically that was our way of showing how closely sleep, especially slow waves during sleep are related to maturational processes during this time period. So the slow waves are developing more posterior first, and then you're seeing them more frontal, which is surprising, actually, because slow waves tend to be generated frontal and then they move posterior. But I guess this is an opposing process in the development. Exactly. Actually, Salome Kurt had a paper where she looked at this traveling or this initiation of these slow waves, you know, which so say in adults starts primarily over the front and then 
propagates to the back of our brains. She provided some evidence that this might also change depending on the maturational stage. It seems, for example, that in her younger participants, she saw that they had a more central origin. So they started actually not so much from the front, but more from the center of the brain and then propagated to the other brain areas. So maybe this is initiation zone also changes across development. Huh, that's really interesting. So it could, they could be initiating more posterior and traveling frontal at a younger age. Do you have thoughts about the causes of this? Yeah, I mean, one obvious aspect is, of course, that maturation takes place in, in so-called critical or sensitive period. The certain system undergoes intense maturational processes. It opens up a window where input, you know, into that system, for example, in the visual system, visual input in that system shapes actually the system and lets it mature, you know, so that you can achieve visual acuity, that you can achieve all the important features of that particular system. And that seems to undergo a certain sequence, basically, how these sensitive periods move across the cortex. And it seems very much so that when a brain area shows deepest sleep is exactly the time when these sensitive or critical periods take place. That's something which is, of course, then again linked to plastic changes at the synapse, maybe, where again for the visual system, we have quite good evidence that sleep seems to be really essential for these, for example, ocular dominance plasticity model, you know. Actually, the link between sleep and plasticity has been shown a long time back and actually very convincingly, as I would say. And so that's probably the link again between synaptic plasticity and these sleep slow waves which we see pop up during this developmental period. So when you say the, the kind of critical periods coincide with the sleep periods, do you mean that when you're seeing a lot of changes in synaptic plasticity it coincides with the sleep periods? It's not, I mean, obviously, because kids are sleeping every night, but this is when you're seeing that kind of plasticity. Exactly. And I mean, actually, you can repeated the very same experiment about this local sleep we talked about before, also during this developmental period, you know. So our kids and adolescents and also in a control adult group performed the very same visual motor task we, we talked about before. And what was really interesting to see is that when we looked at the changes in slow effectivity during subsequent sleep, we saw that across the entire population, again, this right parietal area showed more slow effectivity. But when we divided this up into the different age groups, we saw that the kids, so the youngest participants in our experiment, actually showed by far the biggest increase. So for the very same learning they did, they all had the same learning in terms of your nice learning curve, achieved the same level across all these age groups. But so for the same learning during wakefulness before sleep, kids showed a much bigger increase in this right parietal area of slow effectivity. So again, this would be exactly what we would expect from such a sensitive period maturation, which relies to a large extent on these experience-dependent plastic changes. And they seem to be much more expressed in kids, of course, again, depending on the area you are looking at. But it seems that at about 8, 10 years of age, this visual motor integration area probably was in a time where it was in such a sensitive period maturation. So when it's maturing and it's having a lot of plasticity, you would hypothesize that they are showing much larger sleep oscillations. And But in general, kids have amazing slow oscillations, don't they, compared to adults? Absolutely. You know, if you're looking at electroencephalography and are fascinated by the changes, looking at kids' sleep in an 8-10 year old kid to look at deep sleep is absolutely amazing. I still do sleep scoring quite a bit and I'm always fascinated looking at kids' sleep. The adults might experience these slow waves with a few hundred microvolts amplitude. These kids show waves in 1,000 microvolts. They are gigantic and they are looking like a sine wave, which is just taking over everything there is. So it's really amazing how strong these waves are during this developmental period. And you believe that's because of the necessity for plasticity? 
that's at least from a correlational point of view what some of our study shows. Of course, we don't have really a causal link there. Of course, we would have to look when we manipulate that, whether that changes. Maybe one link one can draw is going into clinical populations. You know, we studied children with an attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, and we showed in, in a few studies that they have actually reduced glow effectivity compared to age and gender match control. And what is even more interesting, when we subjected these kids to the very same visual motor learning task, we actually saw that they did not upregulate slow effectivity during subsequent sleep. They were performing the same learning task, and we actually showed that they were able to learn this visual motor learning task. So again, there was no difference in the learning curve between the patient group and the control group. But during subsequent sleep, the healthy kids showed this nice upregulation of slow effectivity in this right parietal area, but the ADHD patients did not show such an upregulation, as if they are not yet in this sensitive period maturation or are lacking this or have a problem in upregulating that. And that might explain, again, why they show overall reduced slow effectivity when carefully studied compared to age-matched controls. So that might be a hint that there is indeed a link between slow waves and plasticity, which can also show up in a clinical condition in children you know, who have attentional problems and have hyperactivity which might be some feature of kind of a developmental delay, as sometimes it is discussed in the literature. The question that comes into my mind is the kind of causality here, because when I see the amazing slow oscillations in kids, you know, sometimes I wonder, I mean, we know that those slow oscillations also break down with age, right? So the, as people age, the slow oscillations get smaller and less frequent, and then eventually they're gone. And so I have wondered if it's also about capacity. Is it because, you know, these kids have these super duper brand new brains with everything shiny and functioning perfectly? And maybe they just have the ability to generate these amazing slow oscillations that we adults don't have. But I can kind of coincide that with what you're saying about plasticity. You know, it could be that they have the ability and then when they reach that stage where they really need the plasticity, then it's it's really expressed and they take advantage of the ability. And maybe in the kids with ADHD, as you said, they just haven't reached that time when they need it. They need the plasticity or maybe the ability is different or limited in some way. What would you say? Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, it goes back to this key question of what is the functional relationship between these slow waves and plasticity, you know, that they reflect basically these plastic processes is what we were talking about primarily, whether they also have a consequence, whether they exert a certain function and are important for plasticity. There we have much less evidence, of course. We need their manipulation studies. One of the studies, actually, which I still cite or discuss quite often is from Prin Christensen, who used transcranial direct current alternating stimulation, you know, to boost or manipulate at least these slow oscillations. And he was able to show that in this young patient with ADHD, who also suffer in terms of how memory gets stabilized or consolidated across sleep. They show clear differences to age-match controls where there is less of destabilization or they benefit less from sleep, let's say, on memory consolidation compared to their um, age-match peers. But when Prin Christensen at all boosted these slow waves by these direct current stimulations, he was able to show that they normalized to the control level in terms of memory consolidation across sleep. So these are exactly the studies needed basically to establish such a, maybe a causal link is too strong of a wording, but at least it goes in that direction. And I think these are the studies I also have in mind and we need more to look into that. So since you mentioned stimulation, I know you have another whole line of work that is about using different kinds of stimulation to manipulate the oscillations. Can I start by asking you about your work with closed loop auditory stimulation, where you manipulate, I believe you actually inhibited the slow oscillations locally, and you found some impacts on ability to learn. 
Yeah, I mean, this was again a start, not we initiated this tool, you know, this was from the Born Group and Go et al, who showed that actually by simple presentation of very brief pink noise stimuli, which are time-locked to the face of the ongoing slow waves or slow oscillation, you can start interacting, modulating these waves. They used it to upregulate these slow waves that they were able to boost or increase this oscillatory activity and showed again some benefits on memory consolidation the next day. We were using the very same tool combined with high-density EEG and were interested also not only to boost these slow waves, but also to see whether we can downregulate them. And what fascinated us is that we seem to be able to do that in a local way, depending on where actually recorded these slow waves from, we were able to shift the reduction in slow effectivity to a particular cortical site. And this was the starting point where we thought, well, maybe we can combine this with this local use-dependent or learning-related regulation of slow waves. So we would basically expect that when we learn a task, as we discussed before, it upregulates slow effectivity in a particular area. We know that the more you upregulate activity in this area, the better you perform on this task the next day. And so the simple experiment was, well, now we take away this slow effectivity in that particular area. Do we see then deficits the next day? That would be the direct consequence of that. And this is exactly what we found. So we used a different task this time, simple finger tapping sequence learning task. And we were able to show that after a night where we downregulated or reduced slow waves over a front to central area, Downregulation was about 10-15% in that particular area. The next day, we saw clear signs of deficits in terms of how well they were able to relearn a new sequence with this learning task. And so again, we were able to establish such a link between learning capacity, let's say, and sleep slow waves during deep sleep stages. Yeah, I think it's extremely elegant, especially when you put it in the context of your earlier work on the local sleep and learning that we talked about. So it's really playing with training that area of the brain and seeing what the slow oscillations do spontaneously or inhibiting it and seeing what the slow oscillations do. Or in this case, learning normally and then inhibiting those slow oscillations so that they can't perform their function during the night and seeing what that does to the the memory the next day. Yeah, particularly the fact that you did this in a local way, I think was very original and exciting. Have you any further plans for closed loop auditory stimulation work? Yeah, I mean, we have good evidence that there is this close relationship between sleep slow waves and maturational processes or plastic changes during development. But how can we further explore this relationship? As I said before, we need manipulations. And of course, during development in kids, we have very limited tools what we can do. Maybe if this would be done in in adults, people have used transcranial magnetic stimulation or DC stimulation, different tools can, of course, be applied. I think we are much more limited for very good reasons what we can do in kids. And I thought from the very beginning that this might be an opportunity because here you use physiological sensory stimuli, which occur anyway, get, you know, auditory stimulation probably in every night by external noises. And so we might have an opportunity here to use this tool also during development. And that's why I was so interested in that. And of course, we started first to look at this in adults and explore this relationship between this tool and slow waves and learning. But the experiments I have in mind or we are running of are more in this developmental domain. We started doing this more in patient population first because we see there the better benefit need. And so these are ongoing studies where we look, for example, in kids with an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, whether we can actually modulate their slow waves and see whether that has some consequences, for example, on learning or attentional processes. I see. So it links back very nicely to what we were saying earlier about these kids and how the slow oscillations maybe do not respond the same in them. And that that links to a learning deficit. So now you try to compensate or to artificially increase their slow oscillations and see if it can improve their learning. 
It actually links to some work that we are doing on the same kind of stimulation, the closed-loop auditory stimulation, but in older adults to try and see if we can slow down some of the decline in the slow oscillations and if that might slow down some decline in cognitive function or even brain atrophy. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. In my opinion, it's a fascinating field, which is quite vivid right now. As you're saying, there are studies right now looking at kids and looking at old age and different populations are investigated and the potential of this method is quite good. And that's also why we invested quite some time. The other project related to that was that we wanted to have an approach which allows us to do it outside of the laboratory. And it's actually more or less the first time I dived into that because most of the work we also discussed right now was lab work brought in our participants, students, kids into the laboratory and used high-density EG extensive equipment to record their sleep. And now we start some projects where we actually bring the equipment to their homes. And so we invested quite a bit to make this tool available for long-term studies where we can manipulate sleep in participants for a week, for a month in their home setting under normal conditions. And of course, this also needed quite an extensive work. How do we do that? How do we parameterize that? And I think we are right now at a very good stage where we start having really interesting results. And again, this opens up a whole different perspective on some of these experiments we were talking before, bringing us more close to real life, you know, where we can investigate these processes. Again, having in mind that some stuff going back to development take place over a very long time period. So if we want to study this more carefully, we cannot just simply look at this for a single night or maybe two nights, but we might have to look at some of these aspects over months and years. And so we need equipment or tools where we have at least the potential, whether that's ever going to happen, I don't know yet, but where we have this potential to do some of these studies. And it feels to me as though that equipment is starting to come on the market. I mean, it sounds as though you've been developing it with academic collaborators, but also there are companies that are marketing some of these tools. So, yeah, it's a very exciting time in terms of manipulating sleep in the home. Is stimulating sleep or trying to manipulate sleep in the home, is that the way forward? Is that what we should be aiming to do in the future? Do you think we can really impact on people's health, cognitive abilities? Nobody knows, also not me. I just see that there is an absolutely great need that we want to improve sleep in many different clinical conditions. I would say there is quite a need. You know, Typically, nowadays, this is achieved by pharmacological manipulations, you know, And I mean, in the field, I think it is for a very long time known, you know, that we might have the need for other approaches other than pharmacological approaches to improve sleep or deepen sleep or manipulate sleep. And I see closed-loop auditory stimulation as one of these potential tools. Hopefully, there will be even more in the future, but that's where we can invest right now. And I think we should explore that as much as we can. Whether it ever turns into a therapeutic approach, I don't know. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also agree with you that we should try, but maybe we should be prepared for failure as well. Just to say, when I asked Bob Stickle this question, his response surprised me. He said, well, who do you think knows better when it should sleep and what kinds of sleep to obtain, you or your brain? That's a good point. Absolutely. And I agree. I think we have to be also careful. And I think that's why I would contrast it more to pharmacological interventions, which also have consequences, you know, and we are careful about side effects and things which might not be ideal under these conditions. And I think we have to be aware with any new tools of this very much, you know, I'm pretty sure, for example, that one can also do too much, you know, we might not want to just simply all have the entire night deep sleep and remove, for example, lighter sleep at all. I mean, there is a physiological process we discussed before, this homeostatic regulation, which is very closely linked to recovery. We know that very well. 
and we might not want to completely mess up with that system. So there I fully agree with Robert Stickholt on that. So maybe uh, these interventions would be more useful in clinical situations where there's actually a problem or something maladaptive to begin with than they would be in healthy people who are sleeping normally. Fully agreed. Yeah. As I said before, even during childhood where we first, our first studies are in patient populations. Okay. So just one more question, and it may be that we've answered this already, but what do you see as the next big exciting questions in your field or for your lab? It's always a big question. You know, if it's interesting, you know, if I look back during my life in sleep research, I think the biggest question came always up when we started a new experiment where we just thought, well, we have the tools now, let's do it, you know, let's let's look at that. And I don't think we had there always a big theory in mind. We were just having the tools and having some ideas, performing the experiments, and then suddenly we saw, oh, there might be a local regulation which might be related to the literature. And also we have now this closed-loop auditory stimulation. Let's take that as an example. We have this tool available, so let's explore what we can do with that. And I'm pretty sure by running experiments and doing detailed analysis, trying to understand what we are actually doing, I'm quite confident that we learn a lot by doing this. And so that is kind of one of my guiding force, you know, that we are never staying in the same stage and using what is available and see how we can use that in our experiments and explore these results. So that's always my hope, that we can translate that into clinical populations, that we can apply it. I think my big hope is that we we have so good understanding of some of these processes in basic research, in healthy sleep. So let's take this knowledge and apply it and see whether we can make a difference in patient populations. I think that's my strong force, which keeps me also busy in the hospital, interacting with clinicians, seeing where are interesting clinical populations we can apply some of our ideas and see whether they are helpful or fruitful. And if we can help these clinical populations just by manipulating their sleep, it will be fantastic, I think. Absolutely. And I mean, we have the whole range there if we can help them to improve, but we can also use that as more a diagnostic tool, for example, to see what is actually going wrong. I think that's equally important because we have sometimes in certain population limited knowledge about or abilities, technologies, how we can look at their brain activity. And I think their sleep offers also an interesting window to look into our brains, into the developing brain and and see what goes wrong. Wonderful. Well, I think it's very exciting work. I thank you very much for your time and for sharing all of this with us on the podcast. You're very welcome. And thanks a lot for all the good questions and support in discussing these different aspects. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Sleep Science Podcast with me, Penny Lewis. My guest today was Professor Rita Huber from the University Children's Hospital in Zurich, and the producer was Vanessa Hyde. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing to the podcast or liking us on Twitter. We're planning a Q&A session for the last episode of this series, so if you have questions about this episode or anything else sleep-related, please send them to us on Twitter at hashtag sleepsciencepodcastQ&A. Thanks for listening, and until next time, sleep well.